on these uh, online Bible, you know, where you can have somebody read to you. You know, they always find somebody from England or Scotland or whatever. If I had my way, it would be uh, someone with a, a Georgia accent reading the Bible to me. I appreciate it, Houston. Um, just a quick word. Uh, last week, as I was preaching on Psalm 42, one thing I intended to note, that Saturday night before I was preaching, I was kind of marching around the house being uh, dissatisfied with the sermon. It wasn't coming, it wasn't together as I wanted it to be, and I, and I just was struggling. And then it dawned on me that... Uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones had preached on Psalm 42 and that my wife had, uh, had ordered on Kindle uh, his book, Spiritual Depression, for which, from which he, uh, he preached, or, or, or uh, where he, he talked about Psalm 42. And so I, I read uh, where he talked about Psalm 42, and it so improved my sermon so part of the beginning, well, about the middle and near the end of the sermon was Martin Lloyd-Jones' thoughts, and, and I was dependent upon him. I wanted to give him credit. Uh, if you want to know what parts of the sermon uh, from last week were from Martin Lloyd-Jones, it was the most organized and uh, spiritually beneficial. Um, so I wanted to mention that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we dig into Psalm 25. Oh, Lord, our God, um, sometimes um, we find trouble. Other times, trouble finds us. Uh, regardless of how we fall into trouble, we ask that uh, you would use Psalm 25 to help us know how to trust in you as we walk down the, uh, the paths of trouble that uh, we might be certain that you will carry us through to the end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, Psalm 25 is a psalm to help God's people know how to respond to trouble when it comes into their lives. It's not a matter if trouble, or not a matter of if trouble comes, but when trouble comes. It is impossible to avoid trouble. Sometimes trouble comes in the form of an accident, like my daughter um, in her car accident. She was just sitting in the passenger seat uh, when a young man, not paying attention in the car behind her, uh, rammed uh, the car she was sitting in from behind. Sometimes trouble comes in the form of an affliction or an illness, uh, like the affliction some in our congregation are going through presently. Sometimes trouble comes in the form of other people's evil, like uh, the scams where someone steals our identity and makes purchases without our knowledge. Sometimes the source of, of our trouble is our, our own selves. We're the source of our own trouble when we sin and the consequences of our sin catch up with us. Although our self-inflicted sin-caused troubles are typically not as outwardly devastating as the other causes of trouble, they are inwardly much more tormenting. 
What makes self-inflicted sin cause troubles so tormenting is not the regret that you brought trouble on yourself. Um, rather, what makes sin-inflicted sin cause troubles so tormenting is the guilt and the shame and the regret that spiral downward into a vortex of self-condemnation. I've been in the ministry for 23 long years, and I have seen this cycle more times than I can remember. The guilt and the shame bring on self-reproach. They bring on resolutions to change. They bring on self-punishments. And I could go on and on. Guilt and shame typically spiral in many fruitless directions. The psalmist was going through the same kind of, uh, going through some kind of personal trouble. So look at verses 16 through 18. He says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Notice at the end of verse 18, he says, Forgive all my sins. It's apparent that in the psalmist's mind, his troubles are connected with his sins. It is clear that his trouble is is, is stirring his feelings of guilt. Not only does he plead with God to forgive his sins in verse 18, but he does so also in verses 11 and verses 6 and 7. And we'll see this as we work our way backwards through the psalm. So look at verse 11 real quickly. He says in verse 7, Remember not... I'm sorry, verse 11 first. Um, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then look at verse 7. Or verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, or my transgressions, according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Did you notice how he asked God not to remember the sins of his youth? This tells us that he was at an older point in his life uh, when this psalm was written. He's looking back, he's scanning over his life. He's looking back at his, the sins of his youth, and he has regrets. Let me just um, take one little rabbit trail, one little footnote here, and say to our younger people that chasing after the world when you're young, thinking that I've got to, to do what my friends are doing, I've got to experience this or that, brings tears later in life. It brings regrets later in life. Trust in the Lord when you are young. When you are tempted and oh so tempted by what your friends are doing. By what you're seeing on social media. By what you're seeing on television. 
And you think, I'm missing out. What you're missing out on is a lot of regret that as you mature and grow older, you would otherwise have. You know, we don't have to guess who wrote Psalm 25. The inspired heading tells us that David wrote this psalm. If you look up at the beginning of the psalm, in my version it has, Teach me your paths. That's not inspired. That's the ESV's heading. But underneath it has, Of David. That's an inspired heading. And it tells us who the author was. David uh, is the author of Psalm 25. And since uh, this was written later in David's life, because he's saying, remember not the sins of my youth, uh, we can know with a high degree of confidence the trouble that was the occasion for David's writing this psalm. David is most widely known as the man after God's own heart, as the man who killed Goliath with a stone, but he's also famously known for his adultery with Bathsheba and his orchestration of uh, her husband's death after David realized that Bathsheba was carrying his child. Although David did not pull the trigger, so to speak, he murdered Uriah. With Uriah dead, David thought that his adultery would never be found out, but God knew. And God sent the prophet Nathan to visit David and to reveal to David that he was caught. And David repented. Now, by law, David should have suffered the death penalty. But God instead had other consequences for David. And so listen to 2 Samuel chapter 12. You don't need to turn, turn there. Um, Nathan showed up and he said to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before all the sun. And then listen to David's response. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. He has forgiven your sin, Nathan is telling David. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you by Bathsheba shall die. The rest of 2 Samuel is, a pain, is painful to read as all of Nathan's prophecies came to pass in David's life. Had I been David, I would have much preferred to die than suffer all the heartbreak 
that unfolded in David's life and in his family's life. His child born to, da- to Bathsheba short- died shortly after it was born. Then Amnon, David's firstborn son, became infatuated with his half-sister Tamar, and he raped her. David heard about the rape. He was angry about the rape, but he did nothing. Therefore, Tamar's full brother Absalom decided to get justice for his sister by putting Amnon to death. He plotted for two whole years before he hatched his plot and killed Amnon. Absalom then decided his father was weak and he decided his father was unfit to be king since he did not mete out justice against Amnon. So Absalom plotted for another four years to overthrow David and take his place as king. And had God not intervened, Absalom and his plan was so intricate and so successful um, that Absalom would have indeed uh, removed David from being king and would have killed him had it not been for God... uh, intervening and giving Absalom bad advice through his counselor, he would have been successful. While David was fleeing Jerusalem to keep from being killed by his own son, citizens of Jerusalem hurled insults at him. There was one man in particular hurled insults at him and threw rocks at him while David was leaving Jerusalem. David's humiliation was deep. But because God was protecting David from Absalom, uh, the attempt to overthrow David uh, failed, and Absalom's forces were routed in battle. Absalom was consequently killed in battle, and David's heart was broken. It seems certain that David wrote Psalm 25 in the aftermath of these tragic and heartbreaking circumstances. As David reflected on the trouble that was continuing to break over his life as one wave after another, he became so overwhelmed with his own high-handed sin that was the cause of the death of at least three of his children and the rape of his daughter and the near overthrow of his kingdom that he was tempted to be overwhelmed with the loss of hope. He was tempted to become overwhelmed with despair. I'm certain that some of you can relate to David. I'm certain that uh, many of you can relate to David. I would imagine there are among us in this congregation many who wear garments of guilt and shame and remorse and regret. Uh, The the guilt and shame of your past sins, and you wear them like well-worn undergarments that you rarely take off, that nobody else is able to see. Nobody else knows about these things. If you find yourself in this position, if you find yourself being able to relate to David, I have some good news for you this morning. In fact, it's great news. Because David struggled in how to deal with his past. 
he learned a, very, a few very important lessons that he is passing on to us in Psalm 25. I want us to focus on verse 11 and verses 6 and 7. So I want to look at verse 11. I've already read it, but it bears reading again. He says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David pleads the greatness of his sin, not the smallness of it. He says, God, pardon me because my sin is great. He doesn't say, pardon me, God, because my sin is small. He is saying, my sin is so great that I greatly need God's pardon. The case David is making to God is like the the mercy calls that uh, we tend to get in the office uh, on Friday afternoons near the end of the month. You know, and we'll get a call and, and the person on the other end of the phone is saying something like this. I was passing my way through town on the way to take care of my ailing grandfather, and the car broke down. All my money was used to fix the car. Now I don't have any money for gas. My children can't eat, and we don't have any room for, or any money for a hotel. And some of these calls are legitimate. Other calls are not legitimate. But... Every call presents a desperate need. And so the implied argument is, you must help because my need is so great. And that's David's argument before God in verse 11. My sin is so great, he's saying, I require your pardon. It's a pretty effective argument, actually. God's not moved to mercy by anything in us. If you think about it, We are all unworthy of His mercy. In reality, none of us have anything to offer to God but the miserableness of our sin. God does not pity sinners because they are worthy. He pities sinners because they need His pity. The whole reason that God sent Jesus Christ into our world to be our Savior is to bring glory to Himself. By displaying His free grace to sinners like you and and like me. The greater our sin, therefore the greater our need to be pardoned. David says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. See, David points to God. For your name's sake, for your glory's sake. For the the magnification of your grace. O Lord, pardon my sin, for it is great. In pardoning my great sin, you are magnifying your great grace. I'm stealing this argument from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Edwards said, the greater the guilt of any sinner is, the more glorious and wonderful is the grace of God manifested in his pardon. Jonathan Edwards is stealing his argument from the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 5 verse 20, Paul said, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. There will be on the day of judgment many people who in this life 
called upon Jesus to save them from their sin. But they will be turned away. Now Jesus will never turn away anyone who comes to him for a complete salvation. But there are many who believe that their sin is small. Therefore, their need is piddling. Their need is inconsequential. In other words, they come to Jesus pleading their goodness and their, worldliness, uh, their, their worthiness. They only want Jesus to forgive their sins and their mistakes that are on the edges of their life. The small little things that I did. The small little regrets that I still have. As you sit here this morning, have you applied for God's pardon on the merit of the enormity of your sin or on the merit of the trifling smallness of your sin? David applies to God for pardon based on the greatness of his sin in verse 11. Now look with me at verses 6 and 7. David did not just plead the greatness of his sin. He also pled the mercy, the steadfastness, and the goodness of God. Verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now before we look at God's mercy, steadfastness, and goodness, I want to remind you that David has already been forgiven. He's already been forgiven of his sin of adultery and murder. I read it earlier when I read from 2 Samuel chapter 12, just to to, uh, remind you. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David has been forgiven completely of his adultery and his murder of Uriah. The moment he confessed it and repented, Nathan assured him that he was forgiven. Wow, our God is for, is a forgiving God. But if he's already been forgiven, Why is David so anxious then in Psalm 25 to ask for pardon? So anxious, in fact, that he asked for it three times. Verse 18, as he said, Forgive all my sins. Verse 11, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then verses 6 and 7, as he says, verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Well, here's why David is asking and applying to God and is so anxious that his, uh, his sins be pardoned is that David's conscience remembers very well what he did by committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband to cover up the fact that she had become pregnant. His repentance was genuine back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And his pardon was secure. But David knows that his guilt and his shame and his, and, and his regret will likely return to torment his conscience and his soul. 
So David, instead of reminding God of his past faithfulness and how he trusted God when he marched out on the field of battle with, armed with nothing but a few stones to kill Goliath, he didn't remind God of his past faithfulness. He didn't remind God, hey God, I'm a man after your own heart. We don't hear him talking about that. He doesn't remind God, you remember how faithful I was when I did not put Saul to death when I could have done that very easily? He, do, he, he refers to nothing in regard to his own faithfulness. He, regards, he, he, he refers to nothing in regard to himself at all except for his own sin, which he says is great. So David, instead of reminding God of his past faithfulness, he reminds God to think about himself. He says, God, when you remember me, think about yourself. And, his, and think about your mercy, God. Think about your steadfast love, God. Think about your goodness when you think about me. This is vital. I'm about to make one of the most important statements that I believe I've made in in 12 plus years of ministry from this pulpit. So I want you to listen up because you might miss it. David is saying in effect, Lord, when you think about me, remember yourself. This is vital. In his short little book, uh, Making All Things New, Restoring Joy to the Sexually Broken, David Pallison asked these questions. He says, Are you haunted by your sins in the eyes of God, in the eyes of your conscience, and in the eyes of others who might find out? Your sin may have just occurred a few minutes ago, or it may be a distant but potent memory. Perhaps you don't commit that sin anymore, you've come far and no longer feel any allure to a lifestyle you once avidly pursued, or perhaps you just did it again, but the memory, whether fresh-minted or ancient history, fills you with dismay. King David recognized, as David Pallison is pointing out, that guilt and shame and regret spiral inward uh, into a vortex of self-condemnation where all that you see around you is your own sin and how unworthy you are of God's love. And it might even spiral down into thinking you are unworthy of anybody's love. And it keeps going down. God, I'm beyond forgiving. I'm beyond you ever forgiving me or loving me. You ever said that in your soul? But Christ-centered repentance, and that's what we see here in David. Christ-centered repentance and faith turns us outward from ourselves to him whose opinion of us matters most. What God chooses to remember about you is what is most important. Again, to quote David Pallison, your self-evaluation depends on the evaluation God makes and the stance he takes. 
If the Lord is merciful, then mercy gets the final say. The soap opera of David's sin and the many tragic consequences that followed, as shameful as it was, as heinous and bad as it was, it all played out before the whole nation of Israel. They had a, the, the nation had a front row seat to see David's sin, to see his family unraveling, to see the many uh, consequences that followed his sin. But David was wise enough to know how faith in God's mercy decenters us off ourselves. And that's the real danger. When we sin, we turn inward, we see our sin. And David has learned that God's mercy is able to decenter us from ourselves, decenter us from our self concern, and to recenter us onto God's precious promises and his merciful character. There's so much of this psalm that I've not dealt with. Frankly, as a seasoned pastor and as a sinner myself, I know that many would not be able to apply the rest of this psalm to themselves unless and until they were able to learn how to decenter their troubles, decenter their guilt, decenter their shame and their regret off themselves, and to first recenter themselves onto God's gracious promises and merciful character. So I've dealt with that. But in conclusion, I want to spend about three or four minutes teaching how to use Psalm 25 in its entirety um, when trouble comes your way. In this psalm, David alternates between praying and speaking to himself. He begins verses 1 through 7 by praying. So the first lesson is, when suffering trouble, pray. That's the first thing you should do. But when you're in suffering trouble... It's kind of hard to pray. I know from experience. From many experiences. And so David begins praying, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I put in, or in you uh, I trust. So when trouble's biting at our heels, it can be difficult to pray. When you feel as if your prayers are not rising above the roof of your house or the sanctuary as it were, it's difficult then to lift up your soul unto God. And that's why this second line of David's prayer is so important. What he does is in his temptation to wallow in guilt and not be able to lift himself up to God, he tethers his faith to God. God, in you I trust. And it's like an elastic anchor, if you will. He's, he's tossing his, his faith into God. God loves him. And he knows that God is going to pull him forward. So to you, I lift up my soul. It's only by faith. Faith in God's goodness. Faith in God's promises. Faith in his mercy. That he knows that he will lift up his soul unto God. Because it is God lifting up his soul unto himself. 
When we cast our faith into God, it is then when He lifts us up. And the good news is, we don't know uh, what we are to pray when we are praying in times of trouble. Oftentimes, we don't know why God's sending trouble our way. So should we pray, God, help me to persevere? Help me to uh, deliver, be delivered from it? Help, what should I learn? We don't know what to pray oftentimes. So we begin our pray, prayer saying, God, help me to pray. Lift up my soul where I can decenter myself and recenter on you. And that, I think, is essentially what he's doing in verses 1 through 7. Calling upon the Lord. In verses 8 through 10, David stops praying and he started meditating. See, he was, I think, struggling to keep himself recentered on God. So he stopped praying and he started thinking about God's faithfulness to his people. Uh, verses 8 through 10. God our good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble in His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast, are, are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. So He's reminding Himself of God's faithfulness. Then, verse eleven, He commits to praying again. Uh, he's still concerned about how His conscience was going to deal with His guilt, His shame, His regret. So he says, as I've already quoted several times, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then he stops praying and he starts speaking to himself. And as I said last week, it is so important sometimes to speak truth to our soul. Because if we start listening to ourselves, it's going to remind us of our troubles. It's going to remind us of how difficult yesterday was. Uh, how much pain we're going through today, and we start worrying about tomorrow. So instead of letting us speak to ourselves, we speak to ourselves God's promises in His Word. And I think that was something I learned from uh, uh, Lloyd-Jones. Um, and then in uh, verses 12 through 15, he starts speaking well he starts speaking to himself about the importance of fearing the lord and keeping god first and then he finished the psalm with verses 16 through 22 uh, i'm just going to read verse 22 because uh, verse 22 is a prayer that david prayed for you when you were experiencing trouble he says redeem israel o god out of all his troubles it's a prayer that God will answer in your life because God has already answered it by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem Israel from all her sins. Jesus purchased us for God on the cross. His blood was shed for us. So then, the question is, how will God also, um, not also graciously see us through our troubles? He will be there with us. He will carry us. He will hold our hand as we walk through these troubles. He will redeem Israel from all her troubles. To conclude, I've got two quotes. One from Paul Tripp and one from John Piper. Every moment of your life, no matter how surprising or chaotic it seems to you, is lived under the careful administration of the one who said he will never leave you or forsake you. And then John Piper, 
God's putting us in the fire is not proof that prayer doesn't work and God isn't listening. Rather, God allows the flames to deepen our trust, renew our dependence, and strengthen our love. So don't ever turn away from Him as we pray together. Our Father and our God, uh, this psalm was a mouthful, uh, but it is so important. And I ask that you would help us, like David, to trust you when we are going through the troubles. God, um, our congregation is going uh, through troubles as we um, think of uh, two of our sisters who are going through troubles uh, in their health. God, we lift them up to you. And we ask that you help them to continually um, remember your mercy, your steadfast love, and your goodness. God, help us to remember your mercy, your steadfast love, and your goodness. They truly are from old, of old. God, we ask that you help us as we walk through the various troubles that will come our way. Help us to keep our trust anchored in our Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed will redeem Israel from all his, her troubles because he has already done so by his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection and his continual intercession for the saints. We pray in his name. Amen.